0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, censoring the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Great! Happy Pride! <laughs> Happy Pride in day, yeah, indeed. it is so exciting. There's, there's rainbows everywhere. Yeah, man, I saw a lot of people celebrating. Like, uh, one of the nice things I like about... Uh, you know, every passing year, I get I like make new friends in uh, certain spheres, and I just see more and more people celebrating pride. And I don't know if it's so much of a sign of progress or just how immersed I become mm-hmm. in that community. But either way, I just love seeing my social media feeds fill up with uh, rainbows, uh, pride, like different uh, pride flags. It's just you know a joy to see uh, that progress that humanity is making and that people are celebrating being their authentic selves. It's really nice. Uh, Are you doing anything to uh, celebrate in particular this month, Derek?
1: Yes. So tomorrow there is this, this March and Pride Festival and vigil that's happening. And it's really a contrast, an alternative, and a boycott of the big Boston Pride. So there's this whole Boston Pride parade and festival. Mm-hmm. However, there's some problems and we okay. are boycotting Boston Pride.
0: Oh, okay. We are yeah. boycotting Boston Pride. Can you talk about that a little bit more?
1: Yes. So what what's happened is Boston Pride has had a history of not just making mistakes, but having structural elements that prevent the flourishing of people of color, trans folks and like mm. basically All the problems, right? As a result of that, a number of activists are boycotting Boston Pride this year and creating their own march and festival. And if people want to know more about this and the reasons behind it and the documentation of it, go to transresistancema.com. Transresistance, okay. Transresistancema.com. And it's interesting because the, the major Pride, the Boston Pride people, have postponed Pride until later this fall due to the, to the pandemic. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a problem with that because Pride goes before the fall. Oh, man. Mm. I got you.
0: Uh, I every got time. you. <laughs> I never see it coming. I never <laughs> see it coming. Yeah. I hate everything. <laughs> Y'all listening? Like, yeah. mark these timestamps. I want to like make a whole supercut of every single one of these jokes and puns, especially these ones I don't see coming. But let's just
1: talk about this. People are people are going to look at me, especially straight folks are going to look at me and say, "Why are you boycotting one of the biggest celebrations of your people in the country?" Well, first of all, it's a justice issue. Like, we're not. There's nothing to celebrate unless we're all there, and there's queer people of color that are being left out of the, there's just so many injustices. You can look at the documentation, but there's just a lot of injustice that needs to be named. But here's the Mm -hmm. other thing. Straight people boycott straight people all the time. That's the history of boycott. Just because you're straight doesn't mean you automatically give straight people a free pass if you're boycotting Mm -hmm. some third issue. Mm -hmm. Same thing here. Just because I'm queer doesn't mean that you can't boycott other queer people. Like half the dating world of Boston has boycotted me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding about that. I mean, most most, <laughs> the, most of the gay people like, like me here. But mm-hmm. let's go ahead and jump into Doctrine and Covenants.
0: All right. Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, before we go ahead and do that, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of Independent, interesting podcasts promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. All right, so we are going to be in uh, Doctrine and Covenant section 64 today, 64 through 66. Now, a little bit of background, especially for this uh, longer section here, uh, section 64. This was given at a uh, time of a lot of, uh, I guess, contention, disagreement, murmuring, those kinds of things. We've already come across a bit of it uh, in the previous sections, in section 42, uh, section 58, I think. Uh, the sections where Edward Partridge were, was causing problems, disagreeing with the prophet, disagreeing with uh, the location of Zion and just being scared of it and you know taking issue there. We also read about Ezra Booth and uh, Isaac Morley who also took issue with the prophet and failed to properly fill their missions. They were also chastised for not opening their mouths and uh, finding fault with Joseph. Isaac Morley would actually end up repenting Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. Ezra Booth, uh, he would end up maintaining his grievances, and that's more or less the uh, context in which we get uh, section 64. Uh, there is a rather unfortunate footnote to uh, Ezra Booth's story. We do know that he would end up apostatizing from the church, and this is about five months into his membership. Um but uh, this is, again, more or less the context in which we are receiving section 64. The Lord is talking about these folks, talking about forgiveness, and uh, talking about these uh, these people. So let's go ahead and uh, dive into the content. I believe you are the first person uh, with something to say about uh, these verses, Derek. So why don't you go ahead and begin? So I just want to start with verse
1: two. It says, I will that ye should overcome the world, wherefore I will have compassion on you. And I want to talk about this overcoming the world because I think so much of what has happened in our church's history and our present is that we accommodate the world, the world of injustice, and it somehow sneaks in and creeps in and infects our church with injustices that aren't even native to our church like it's not Mm -hmm. in our they're not in our sources they're not actually from god we just Mm -hmm. pick them up from the surrounding culture Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially racism sexism and homophobia are some of the injustices that i'm thinking of and they were in the world before they were ever in the church right Mm. People are saying, "Oh, this this policy comes from God." Well, everyone else in the world had that policy, you know. It it can't come from the Lord. I don't know if I can explain my logic around this, but let me try. Awesome. These anti-gay positions, for example, that have predominated in our church are not special knowledge from God. It's okay. not framed that way. It's not like, "Oh, we have some truth that the rest of the world doesn't have because of our special bat phone, heaven to God phone. You know what I'm talking about? That special bat phone?
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm old enough to get that reference, Derek.
1: Now, um, but yeah, so these, the the church's approach, or I should say the church leader's approach to uh, the anti-gay positions are very similar or they're basically exactly the same as the positions of the Protestant Catholic worlds that saturated the restored church. If you look at, this is really interesting. If you go back and look at the anti-gay propaganda in the church from the 60s and 70s, which I've done for fun, by the way. (sighs) If you look at the reasoning that was given by Spencer W. Kimball, it's not about sealing, it's not about eternal families, it's not about well they're not sealed therefore they can't be exalted and they can't be exalted because they're not sealed and the family proclamation and all that. No, none of that was was there. What happened is there was no asking of the Lord. They didn't need to ask. They already knew from the surrounding culture. Let's just back up. In the early 20th century, gay was a criminal thing. It was seen as a criminal matter. Later in the 20th century, it was seen as a mental illness, Mm -hmm. right? That's what they were swimming in. There was no need to ask anything. They knew. And every other religious group said the same thing. I don't know how they're saying that that is something unique or special to the Lord's church, that the Lord gave us some special insider knowledge that the rest of the world didn't have. And that would be Mm -hmm. really revelation. But because it was the rest of what the world was teaching, it's very, very suspicious. Like, Mm -hmm. how can you claim that that's... Revelation. It's everyone else believed it too. They went along with it. They didn't know. I wonder if I can say they didn't know any better. I'm not sure if I would say that or not. But the leaders of church the church had no reason to double check or confirm their prejudices or, or mm. test it or ask God about it. The leaders weren't saying anything that the other churches weren't saying. That's probably my biggest proof as to why it's not a special revelation from God. The leaders mm. weren't saying anything that the other churches weren't saying. So given that fact, it's impossible to maintain that this position was based on fresh and special revelation given specifically to LDS leaders. Another way of looking at it is this. When you look at what Spencer W. Kimball wrote, he just basically regurgitated the, oh, it's a mental illness or, oh, it's uh, it's de- degrading and degenerate or especially they just regurgitated the Protestant exegesis of the clobber passages they didn't turn to sealing Mm -hmm. they didn't turn to joseph smith they didn't turn to anything Mm -hmm. that came directly from god they said oh well look everyone's already talked about this gay equals bad according to leviticus and romans closed chapter we don't have to ask Mm -hmm. and i think it's the short circuiting of the pro uh, the the whole process and not trusting the process that deprived them of the joy and excitement of fresh revelation they didn't live Mm -hmm. into their birthright and this, as you know, happened with racism as well, not to completely excuse it, but right. that's a big factor in where Brigham where it went with what he did and why people felt locked into the inertia of defending something that's indefensible.
0: But how do we fix right. it? Because we were countercultural prior to that point. Yeah. Right.
1: How, how do we listen? I mean, how do we fix this? How do we overcome the world? Well, here's how you do it. You listen to the people on the margins. You listen mm-hmm. to LGBTQ people and asexual people and aromantic people and intersex folks. And then you listen to God. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that will will solve it. Let's talk about overcoming the world. Part of the world... Like if you're... if I may, real quick, no, Derek, yeah. I
0: just wanna I just wanna make reference to uh, you know that brilliant treatise you gave us a few like several weeks ago, uh, talking about how a lot of uh, the revelation that we have received, uh, whether it be in the church or in the ancient scriptures or the modern day scriptures, even uh, came from people or leaders uh, listening to people on the margins or listening to people who were most affected by the injustices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you made references to Moses like two or three times, you made uh, reference to the modern day apostles, you made uh, reference to Jesus, all examples of uh, the people in power, the prophets specifically, listening to the people experiencing Mm. injustice or listening to people who were, were, uh, you know, just otherwise not experiencing the fullness of their blessings, and that is how we got a lot of our scriptures today you talked about how we got new torah because of the uh, right. daughters of that guy whose name i can't pronounce you know just yeah there's just a lot of beauty in that and I just mm-hmm. want to like mm-hmm. make sure that I throw back to that. We also got a whole slideshow on our Instagram if you guys want to you know go ahead and see that, but just so you guys know, we have talked about this on the show before and there is precedent for what Derek is saying. My bad for interrupting, brother. Go ahead. Oh. Well, let's talk about the world. People are like so
1: proud yes, of of excluding gay couples. Look at all yeah. of the world. It's homophobic. Yeah. I think it takes special knowledge that we're all created in the Im- in image of God to overcome the world's homophobia. Speaking of the mm-hmm. world's homophobia, let's look at the, uh, today is the fifth anniversary of the Orlando shooting, the Pulse nightclub shooting, where they had a, which was an LGBTQ nightclub, and they catered to um, people of color, and they had special nights for people of color and this was one of those mm-hmm. celebrations. In the middle of Pride Month, by the way, okay. Mm. They, uh, y- yeah, uh, I just, there's no words for this. It's a, a blow to um, dozens and dozens of families. It is our, um, one of our, I, th- I think it might be our biggest mass shooting in the United States I think it is, right? I'm not sure I think it's other
0: than that one in that that happened in Nevada or something. Oh like that. yeah, well, it's one of the top I think at the time oh, that, it happened, at that, that it happened I
1: think at time it was at the time that it happened, I think it was yeah this is this is real, and someone was anti-gay is is that where people that is the logical that is the logical outgrowth of being anti-gay it's It's kind of like the mm. witch hunts. Right? I don't think we're more moral than the witch hunt people of, of Salem in 1692. Our human nature hasn't changed any. What changed mm-hmm. is our facts. Like now we just don't believe in witches. But if we really did believe that there's people who secretly could harm you and we have to prevent them before they can do it, that's anti-terrorism. Like the way that we talk about terrorists is the way that the witch hunter people people talked about witches.
0: Like, hmm. now we Makes I'm, it sound ridiculous when you think, when you, when you say it like that.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so our human nature hasn't changed. And I want to remember the victims of the Orlando shooting, the survivors and their families. And I hope that on the morning of the first resurrection, when those precious children of God are raised from the dead, that they will, on that day, finish the dancing and rejoicing that they were doing because they didn't get to finish it I'm gonna tell God on the on the morning of the first resurrection, God, you gotta let them finish. we we will mm. be a cloud of witnesses watching them finish their celebration. Mm. And uh, that's probably the best way I can uh hold their memory in my heart at this time. Amen. I wanna go on to verse five. Verse five. Okay. I, I just have one quick point of oh yeah, quick. That's the biggest lie ever. That's the biggest lie since Satan in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> okay and the First key five. <laughs> <laughs> here's my quick point it yeah. says and the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom shall not be taken from my servant joseph smith jr through the means i have appointed while he liveth in as much as he obeyeth mine ordinances so there's a conditional there's a conditional clause here that it won't be taken away as long as he obeys if he doesn't obey there's no guarantee. So my point is that the authority of prophets is conditional. We see this throughout every one of the standard works. We're not a cult. We don't believe that we worship the leaders. We don't have to obey the leaders unconditionally. They're not mm-hmm. ultimately in charge. They're fellow people. They make mistakes. I make mistakes. Um I don't always I I'm going to admit this. I don't always perceive the will of God correctly. I just, it's not any different for the leaders of a church. Sometimes I'm going to be wrong. Sometimes they're going to be wrong. And also notice that verse seven, speaking of Joseph Smith, explicitly says he has sinned. Right? Mm. So that's my quick point. Now you, do you have any follow-up thoughts on that?
0: I don't really. Um, I mean, we talk about this a lot on the show about how, uh, I mean, I don't think, This is even the first time we've said that, uh, you know, the Prophet's authority is conditional. We've talked about this, uh, particularly around um, our policies affecting uh, LGBTQ folks. We've talked about it when it came to uh, when it came to black folks. And uh, I don't think I have anything necessarily new. Uh, to say to that particular point, except to you know just highlight the witness that you found in yet another uh, scripture. So uh, thank you yeah. for that. Well,
1: here's something that I need to ask you because I'm not a lifelong member of the church. I wasn't enculturated in this context. Mm. I get this feeling that if I stood up on the, in the pulpit or in Sunday school class and I just flatly said, President Nelson is wrong about this, that's a big no-no. I get this impression that we just don't do that. Why is that the case? Why shouldn't I be? This isn't a cult. This isn't mm-hmm. a mind control game where whatever someone says goes automatically. But so why do we culturally have this taboo around just getting up and say, you know what, we're wrong on this. President Nelson is wrong, and here's why. <laughs> why? Why don't we? Why aren't we like, quote allowed to say that? Or what am I?
0: Yeah. Why. Well, um, I'm saying this is somebody whose favorite primary song to sing was Follow the Prophet when I was in primary. And we sang all the verses when I was in primary. That has been drilled into our heads for a long time. This idea that you should follow the prophet if we don't want to go astray and to follow the prophet because he knows the way. So if somebody gets up and says... Following the prophet in this particular instance will make you go astray. It just, it's a very jarring thing to hear and, you know, a very jarring thing to have to wrestle with if it is true. Like, I can't tell you how many people have wanted to speak to me or have confided in me their struggles because they are struggling so hard and in, in trying to reconcile their friendship With their LGBTQ friends, but at the same time reconcile that friendship, those friendships that they say are loving, with their faith that says that those same people are not entitled to the same blessings that they receive, um, you know, basically because of their orientation. Um, It's a. It, never, it hasn't really gotten easier for me at, at this point in my life to listen to somebody affirm church policy while also affirming that they love their LGBTQ friends. But still, like what I hear is thus people don't want to confront that reality. They don't want to have to confront the fact that they do actually disagree with the prophets on stuff. And, you know, I think a lot of people know this deep down inside of them that, uh, they're not going to agree and they don't agree with everything the prophet says or does. But having to confront that means having to do a deep theological cleansing of these so-called truths that they learn from a very young age. Mm -hmm. Like having to listen to somebody say that president Nelson is wrong about something is going to spark a lot of work that I don't want to do. That a lot of people don't want to do. And I feel like that's what this is about at the end of the day. This is why people cling so hard to conspiracy theories or to racism, homophobia, or you know any other ism or phobia. Because clinging to those things in the name of Christ validates these errant parts of their personality. It tells them that they are okay being this way. So when you get up there and say President Nelson is wrong about that. Just like anything else, that is a challenge to who I am as a person, to what I have believed mm-hmm. for my entire life. And, uh, you know, I don't know that this is exclusive to Mormons, but I will definitely say for us mm-hmm. um, that when the way that we view the world is challenged, in such a way that we have to do a lot of internal work, we resist it like the plague. And you know, we've seen this as recently as last week. Well, we've learned uh, that we don't resist the plague very well as humans. Oh yep, you write about that too. Yeah, I just, so bad bad example. Bad bad <laughs> example. Um, I saw somebody on Twitter say the other day. You know, I don't. I didn't understand how Jaws could possibly be a movie until the pandemic hit, where people, even knowing the threat, still exposed themselves to Ew. it. So my bad. Bad analogy. I don't even think I will say avoid it like the plague anymore <laughs> after this past year and a half, because. That's just a bad example. But you get what I'm trying to say. People do not want to confront the possibility that they have to do some serious work on who they are as people and how they view the world, because that's what happens when you say, uh, that's what happens when you say that President Nelson was wrong. You are forcing people to yeah. do work they don't want to do.
1: Well, I think it depends on the maturity of the per- person and the maturity of the tradition that they're in because I know very healthy churches or very healthy religious movements that are built around questioning, that are built on yes, diversity, that, that are built on uh, debate and deliberation and, and, but and the world. That work. is not us. That well, has never been well, us. We it, are
0: not a mm. theologically we're not a theologically mature people. That's just what yeah. it is. Oops. Uh, that, we're not raised that way. We're not conditioned to be that.
1: Well, I guess I am, but I think I'm, I
0: brought well, a lot Well, you are, of, uh, but you weren't raised in the church. Right. I'm saying that we as a people, Mormons, like born and raised in the covenant, no. people that have been part of us for a long time, we're not conditioned to be theologically mature. We're just not.
1: Well, I just want to say something about follow the prophet. Uh-huh. Every time someone says follow the prophet, you need to pair that with Joseph's saying... That a prophet is only a prophet when he acts as such. Mm-hmm. Like if he's not, it's not a stat. It's kind of, The word prophet is kind of like the word ally. It's not an identity. It's either in that moment you are acting as an ally or not, or you are acting as a prophet or not. Let's look at examples. Um, the prophet Jonah When he said, I don't want to proclaim uh, forgiveness and the opportunity of repentance to the Ninevites, that's not an example you want to follow. That's an example of what you don't want to do. So what we've got Uh, is we should go from um, follow the prophet to swallow the prophet, which is what the fish did. uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) But but my, my point is, just because someone is quote a prophet doesn't mean they're infallible doesn't mean that they're not accountable accountability is what builds trust like if a if a prophet on on, of the lord wants to build trust demonstrating accountability is the one thing that will make them reliable because we know that that what they're doing is tested it's tried it's it's been refined in the fire it's been proven right uh, yes, another example of when you don't want to follow the prophet is look at what happened when the, this might have been one of my examples, Aaron and the golden calf. Moses went up the mountain and Aaron was the leader of the people and and people followed him and those people were punished. And uh, you said something about love, like for your people that have the gay friends. Like, first of all, mm-hmm. I want to know if those gay friends think that that other person is their friend, right? Because I, mm-hmm. I bet there's a whole bunch of people who are anti-gay that say, well, Derek is my um, Derek is my. I have a gay friend gay friend, and I probably won't recognize <laughs> them just because I'm friendly to you and just because we know each other, we're not friends. Especially if you don't see me as a full human that should have a full human life, yeah, we're not friends. And th- th- But this gets back to, oh, we love the gays. Th- the problem is a lot of saints, they say the word love, and what they mean is affection. They warm fuzzy feelings. I don't want your warm fuzzy feelings. and. Well, yeah, I do. But my point is justice for me should not be based on or derived from in any sense your uh, affection for me or my people. Like a lot of people have affection for the gays and that's what makes them want to do the right thing for us because they finally realize that we're fully human and we shouldn't suffer. But it should not be based on affection for us. Like I said, this was a short point, but what happened was I asked you for your thoughts and then I had thoughts about your thoughts, so it's not completely
0: (laughs) fair. Ain't that the way it goes? Ain't that the way it goes, though? So
1: let's move on to, you had some cool stuff to say
0: about uh, verse 9. You know, I'm actually going to move from that for now. Um, If we got time, we can come back to it. I actually want to uh, go to 15 and uh, 16 real quick. So, this section, uh, verses 7 to about 10 or so 9, 11, 12 this is all about forgiveness. Um, I made a couple highlights here about the parts that uh, stood out to me. Uh, Ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. And then, of course, this uh, uh, scripture mastery here in verse 10 I the Lord will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive. All men now um, I believe honestly I do that forgiveness is a big part of reconciliation work whether this is on a uh, personal tip or a institutional level like uh, forgiveness is a big part of reconciliation it is a requirement Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for uh, reconciliation work I will say that Um, forgiveness however often gets weaponized in the same way that abusers weaponize forgiveness in that they make forgiveness a requirement even as the abuse continues or they make it a requirement so that the abuse may continue Mm. i see this a lot applied to black folks particularly when we talk about things like reparations or when we talk about uh, affirmative action or anything else that is designed to Uh, make equity a reality Mm -hmm. or correct the transgression, the transgressions of this nation against my people. And then people want to talk about forgiveness. Can't you just forgive white people or forgive America for their transgressions against you? The answer to that question has always been yes. You know what I'm saying? There has never been a time where black people were opposed to forgiveness. Like we have always been on that tip. What we have not been about was releasing people or relieving people of accountability. Even in the church, we talk about restitution as part of the repentance process. And if we know that you are capable of restitution and you don't do it, that becomes a problem for us. I do not believe that I am entitled to forgiveness if I am not willing to do the bare minimum or whatever I can to make restitution for the damages. Of my actions like I am not entitled to forgiveness if I'm not willing to do that I believe that the Lord is willing to forgive me but I do believe that that forgiveness is conditional the Lord says it right here I will forgive whom I will forgive the Lord doesn't explicitly state his conditions here but I do know that I am only in I'm only entitled to forgiveness in as much as one I am sincere and two which is an outgrowth of that sincerity that I make an effort to correct the mistakes or correct the effects of my harmful behavior. That is what we got to address, is the accountability piece. If we want to be able to offer forgiveness, black people are more than willing to offer that. We are more than willing to forgive. But here's the thing, if you got the, if you got the means to correct injustice, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. means to set right those things which are wrong, And the means to stop abuse and you choose not to do that, then that is not then anything else, a complete pardon would be wrong. That would be letting you transgress Mm -hmm. our boundaries. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, I think there's a bigger conversation that we can have here about the relationship between forgiveness and boundaries as well. I definitely recommend uh, this book called Boundaries by these two doctors. It's been uh, super helpful for me in uh, learning about boundaries from a Christian perspective because I I find that Christians are particularly bad at setting boundaries, but uh, that particular work really sets into... uh, Really puts into a different perspective Mm -hmm. what it's like to be a Christian with boundaries, taking examples from the life of Jesus Christ himself and how we can apply that in our lives. So I don't I'm not going to say any more about that in particular. All I just wanted to say is that uh, forgiveness should not be weaponized against oppressed people if we're not. Or it shouldn't be weaponized at all, but we should not exhort and oppress people to forgiveness if we are not willing to hold the oppressors accountable for their actions. And that means uh, punishment if necessary, but uh, more specifically, it means restitution, reparation, and making sure that the abuse does not occur again. Because otherwise, um, that forgiveness can't really occur because the, uh, the uh, behavior will still persist. And the damage will still be done.
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, an issue of, well, where's the power dynamic? Is it the person with more power asking forgiveness from the person with less? Mm -hmm. Or is it the other way around, that someone who has the power to punish, someone who has the power to um, enforce some, some consequence... Someone with less power goes to the person with power and asks for, for mercy. That's really, I think, what's going on. It It's really backwards for the people with more power and more resources to go and ask for forgiveness from those with less. That's kind of like those student loan people. They totally have way more power than I do. Like, I owe them money. <laughs> They're the ones with the power. They're, they have lots of money. They have my, they own my debt. So the thing, it would be really weird for them to come and ask me for forgiveness, right? I'm the uh-huh. one that needs to ask them for some for, from debt forgiveness. So mm-hmm. that's really something to, to name. Yeah, and the power dynamic. The, the reconciliation piece. People forget the first half of the truth and reconciliation is the truth. Like we should learn from <laughs> South Africa. You can't really have reconciliation uh-huh. unless you uh, – you can't have unity, you can't have healing unless you figure out what happened and figure out ways of making sure that doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. And then, I want to talk Peacemaking about... Peace-making
0: requires truth-telling, Esau Macaulay. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about
1: how some people use the atonement. They say, oh, well, if you feel bad about being oppressed or feel bad about this injustice, just put it on on Jesus's atonement. And he, oh. he, he, uh... He felt it too, so yeah, just, yeah, goodbye. That is not Mm -hmm. right, that would be, like if someone came to me, literally uh, starving, and asked for food, and I said, well, Jesus felt your starvation, and then I don't give him any food, that's just, that's that's abominable, that's just Mm -hmm.
0: awful. That's not even, that's not what Jesus would do at all.
1: Right, right. So if you just use, well, the atonement covered your pain as a way of putting uh, oppressed people in their place, you have totally missed the whole point of the atonement, which mm-hmm. is to heal, which is to not just give a anesthetic to the pain, but to to go down to the root cause. Let me give a good example of this. Let's talk about the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. People miss the second part of the what happened so obviously lazarus was dead and jesus raised him from the dead and called him out of the tomb and says lazarus come out but then here's what happens he tells the people that's just to unbind him and let him go free so yeah jesus does his part but then we have to work it out Mm -hmm. in community so yeah you can say well jesus covered your your starvation in the atonement but then it's us up to us to actually embody Christ in the world and
0: feed them right Right. it's lazy it's super lazy to expect otherwise like we don't have an extra part of this or that we don't have work to do in this justice and reconciliation work I really like that example yeah I'd like to go next to uh, verses 15 and 16 Uh, this is the conversation about Ezra Booth and Isaac Morley now starting in verse 15 Behold, I, the Lord, was angry with him who was my servant, Ezra Booth, and also my servant, Isaac Morley. For they kept not the law, neither the commandment. They sought evil in their hearts, and I, the Lord, withheld my spirit. They condemned for evil that thing in which there was no evil. Nevertheless, I have forgiven my servant, Isaac Morley. Now, the Lord is talking specifically about Isaac Morley and Ezra Booth, uh, their fault finding with the prophet, not fulfilling their mission, etc., Something I wanted to point out and expand upon is that seeking evil in your heart seems to go along with calling evil good and good evil, or as it's worded here, condemning for evil, that thing in which there was no evil. And we certainly see today people seeking to maintain institutions of misogyny, homophobia, racism, and other oppressive, bigoted institutions, calling the movements designed to address them everything other than good. Most recently, we see people out here talking about CRT, complaining about CRT. Yeah, like, we see white Mormons joining the conversation, uh, I guess last week it was, not knowing much, but nonetheless being critical of CRT because it threatens their comfort, it threatens their way of life, it threatens the way they look at the world. That's the only explanation I can think of because if you look at their grievances with CRT, particularly uh, the grievances outlined in the Public Square magazine article from last week, those grievances can be Googled. I talked about Public Square last week, um, and of the questions that I can't immediately demonstrate were in bad faith, none of the remaining questions were things that haven't already been addressed for literal decades. These are clearly folks with an axe to grind, though they. They'll profess with their words that they really just want to better understand people and they want to build bridges and want to be part of the solution to racism. But just a slightly, slightly critical reading of this piece, which only cites outlying black voices, which doesn't demonstrate an informed understanding of what racism or critical race theory are, which doesn't demonstrate collaboration with or research of multiple black voices and initially basically perform blackface demonstrates that their contribution to this conversation is basically to challenge a framework designed to analyze and ultimately challenge their place in the racial hierarchy. This isn't to say that there aren't valid critiques of CRT, but they didn't raise any that haven't already been addressed. What we see here is people doing exactly what the Lord condemned um, Morley and Booth for doing, seeking evil, finding evil, calling evil in that which there is No evil. And why are they doing it? Because they seek evil in their hearts. And what is that evil in this case? The maintenance, the perpetuation of white supremacy. This is all Mm -hmm. I can see. And we've talked about it on the show before. You say that all homophobia is autobiography and that uh, the reason that homophobes are homophobic is because they got to feel like they got to be better than somebody else. Like there is, I, I can't think of anything about homophobia that makes me a better person. Like that's that may have been what flipped the switch for me like over a decade ago, but just, I could not think of how being homophobic legitimately made me a better person, a more Christ-like person, uh, somebody Mm -hmm. who contributed better to society. And uh, that is when I knew that simply believing or putting my homophobia on God was you know not the right move, and it's not the right move for anybody else either. But um, anyway, this is all to say that um, this is why we seek evil in our hearts. Like for Isaac Morley and for uh, Ezra Booth, they had to call good evil because it justified their particular position. It justified why they did some of the things that they did.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure 100% on this, but I think part of the historical context between... Booth and Morley, and what they were uh, criticized for here has to do with the law of consecration that they were asked to participate in the system, and for some reason they thought the system was evil, or they didn't want to give up their privilege, their economic privilege. They did not want to contribute to the community. They, I think part of what they were com- complaining about was the law of consecration, which that's a very interesting piece to make it even yeah, more. Yeah, I parallel. think they didn't want to sell his farm. Yeah. I think it's more, it's very analogous to people criticizing justice uh, uh, movements and justice policies today because really the, the law of consecration was about just treatment of all people and access and taking care of one another. And that reminds me of something. People who are against CRT, people who are against. Um, any type of social justice movement, they'll try to call it evil. And they'll try to Uh associate with Uh it with evil. They'll try to associate it with Marxism. Right? You see this oh that's Marxism.
0: Like first of all they don't socialism. It's communism. First
1: of all they don't they probably don't even know what Marxism is. But the second thing is I love what Esau Rev the Reverend Dr. Esau McCulley says on this. He said Black people didn't need Karl Marx to tell them that they were oppressed.
0: Amen. Amen.
1: I want to move to 64 verse 33 and I just have one right. quick point. <laughs> Again, a quick point about we'll this. See. It says wherefore be not weary in well doing for ye are laying the foundation of a great work and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. I want to just talk about Alan Turing for a second. Because it's Pride Month, we need to celebrate our queer ancestors. And Alan, Alan Turing. yes, Alan Turing was a brilliant mathematician, basically the f- the founder of computer science. Very influ- even though computers didn't really exist then. And in the 1940s, uh, he was well, he was British, and he oh ah, how- he's
0: one of the original code breakers.
1: Yes, he figured out how to break the German Enigma code. Mm-hmm. And he basically shortened the war by two years, saved tens of millions of lives by allowing the Allies to have the intelligence that they needed to, to win the war. And guess what? He was gay. And uh, he was not very well treated. They tried conversion therapy on him. He may have either been murdered or died by suicide it's not exactly clear what happened but it's a really tragic story in that this person was a hero or should have been a hero but a lot of the cool stuff he did a lot of the amazing stuff he did was classified because of its nature so people didn't really know and my point about this is, it's out of the small things. It's out of the people on the margins. It's out of the queerness. And it seems that he was likely autistic as well. And he thought different from the rest of uh, people that mm. are uh, neurotypical. Let's go to verse 42. And she shall be an enzyme unto the people, and there shall come unto her out of every nation under heaven. Does it, James, does it say just some of the nations or the white nations? Every nation. It says every nation, right? Mm -hmm. Racism is without excuse in the Lord's Mm -hmm. work. Now, some of them are going to try to find an excuse. Now, let's talk. (laughs) So here we've got a warrant for racial and ethnic inclusion within the church because it says there shall come out out of every nation under heaven. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the philosopher John Rawls and his concept of the veil of ignorance because all right when we talk about justice and we want to like set up our society from scratch hypothetically and we're all going to come together and determine how it's structured what Rawls says to imagine is you should structure the society before you know your place in it for example if you want to say have a debate on whether there should be slavery or not you should do it without knowing whether you're gonna end up the slave or the slave master. Like, you don't know beforehand which you're gonna be, and if you don't know beforehand, you're probably gonna say, nope, let's not have any slavery, because I don't know which end of that I'm gonna be in. Mm-hmm. I think that is something that speaks about discrimination. Like, would you support racial discrimination in in any organization if you didn't know which end of it you were gonna be on? I'm like, no, we're. I, we, we wouldn't have it. Like all of these structural injustices we wouldn't have if we made the decisions about the structure behind the veil of ignorance. And this is the good ignorance. A lot of people say ignorance is bad, but what it is is the ignorance of you don't, you hypothetically don't know which end of the injustice you're going to be on. That's Mm -hmm. what he means by ignorance. And how does that reflect in the church? Like I just don't understand how there can be discrimination against women, how there can be discrimination against uh people of color or queer people or trans people in the church, if we had this veil of ignorance in mind, like would we support discrimination against one or one orientation if you didn't know in advance which orientation you were? so but l- let's go back to this uh, let's talk about accountability again. In order to gather out of every nation under heaven, we need people of color in leadership. like we will not be truly gathered in until leadership reflects the diversity of God's children. We definitely need more black and brown people in leadership. And I just want to add that we've never had anyone black in the first presidency, but we have had two brown people in the first presidency. You know who they are? Hmm. Say that again? Yeah, we've had two brown people in the first presidency. It's um, Hugh B. Brown and Ah! and Eldon Tanner.
0: Man (laughs) Why? You have me over here like maybe I misheard the question. There ain't no way he (laughs) means what I think he means. (laughs) Ain't no way. (laughs) Wow. Wow, Derek. Come on, man. I come on. Dude. It's it's
1: what's funny is (laughs) your reaction. I didn't even I didn't see it coming at all. I'm like, I know, over here. I know you're catchy. I have to like out outpace you now because you're, you're starting to see my my jokes. So I have to like outsmart you on these things now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, it's a brilliant setup. It's a brilliant setup. You really got me. I know. I I was
1: working on that for like two weeks.
0: Oh gosh, dang. <laughs> wow.
1: I was like, I got to figure out where I can put this in. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, well, that's all I had to say about this. That, um, but but seriously, we can't really gather people in unless people are gathered into leadership. And then I had one thing to say about sixty-five, and this is sixty-five verse three. Yea, a voice crying, "Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Prepare ye the supper of the Lamb. Make ready for the bridegroom." This task of making ready is something that we all in the church have to participate in. It's not just the leaders, it's everyone. People try to say that change in the church should not come from the bottom up, but, well, on one level, there's you can't change the whole thing unless you change the bottom. That's the, the base. So it's on all of us to prepare for the inbreaking of God's reign into the world. And I want to go back to verse 33 of 64, which I said I was going to come back to. Uh, and this is the one that says, be not weary in well-doing for ye are laying the foundation of a great work. And I have three quotes from, uh, f- from some great theologians on this idea of how to do the foundation of a great work. The first one is by Nadia Boltz Weber. She is a Lutheran pastor. Very, very profound, very insightful, very wise. Here's what she said one of the reasons I've refused to leave the Christian faith is because scripture and theology and liturgy, they're way too potent to be left in the hands of those who only use them to justify their dominance over another group of people. Mm. So that probably doesn't need much comment other than just another witness that, yeah, there's, there's a task for us into the church um, and we should not be weary in this well-doing that we should, should do the work and not be afraid to claim our place in the kingdom rather than just leave it in the hands of people who would use it wrongly. And then for some of our listeners may not know what womanist theology is. Womanist theology is an outgrowth of the experience of black women who mm-hmm. were left out of white feminism in a number of ways. And we don't have time to get into that, but there, there are some significant differences about the intersectionality of being black and being a woman that deserve special attention. And the theology that comes out of that is definitely marked by that context. And so I wanna quote two womanist theologians right now about the concept of hope because building a foundation is based on hope. And the way to not be weary in your well-doing is to have hope for the outcome of what you are hoping for. So here's what, Emily Towns said in an essay, hope is forged out of the biblical call to dig deep into our innards to tell the truth of what we see, feel, hear, and experience. And it reminds us that we must always show up in the face of relentless evil, particularly in such times when it appears so normal and natural in our midst. Mm. That is one way to show up and to not be weary in well-doing. And then I wanna quote from A. Elaine Brown Crawford, her book, Hope in the Holler, A Womanist Theology. And in this book, she moves black women from just survival and endurance to ultimately the transformation of their realities. And this is what she says. And she's drawing here upon Emily Towns Um, this is what Crawford says hope is full of possibilities and yet brimming with dangers hope interrupts the mundane and the comfortable while protesting prophetic fury hope is that which scares us and yet prepares us to confront the atrocities of life towns challenges us to breathe new life into dying hopes hope for towns usually emerges out of communal and personal lament this courage out of lament is grounded in the risen Christ who provides a firm foundation for engaging free, for engaging life free of the shackles of modern oppressions. Hope empowers us to keep on keeping on even the, in the face of disappointment. It gives us strength and yet exposes us to vulnerability. Hope charges us to risk something for the sake of transformed life for ourselves and our communities." Hope refuses to acquiesce to the status quo or powers that be by answering life with life." Close quote. This is just a beautiful exploration of the paradoxical nature of hope. There's this anticipation that's grounded, that's the basis of what hope is defined to be. But that anticipation has some scary parts And it has some grounded parts. And I think getting all of those together is what um, Crawford is is doing for us here. And all of this wisdom is what helps us not be weary in well-doing. It helps us lay a foundation of a great work. And it testifies to the fact that out of small things comes that which is great. Amen. Amen.
0: Well, let's go ahead and wrap things up. But before we do... Just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the dialogue lecture series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal slash podcast network that is dialoguejournal com slash podcast network uh, brother Derek, where can folks find us
1: Uh you can find me sitting in my room preparing jokes. <laughs> Gosh darn it! Yeah,
0: you can totally do that. You yeah, can I mean, totally do that. Yeah, I'm like,
1: I'm gonna never forget this. That I, I I trapped you with the two brown people in you the first did. presidency. You did. Although we did you really have <laughs> we did have a brown prophet in the Book of Mormon, Samuel the Lamanite. Yes, we did. And mm-hmm. which goes to show you that they didn't they didn't listen to him. But uh, you can find us on, <laughs> I, st- I can't stop laughing about that.
0: You can't. You are so amused at yourself. I know. So tickled by your own brilliance. <laughs> like, Derek doesn't get this excited about his own intelligence when he talks about the scriptures, but when he thinks of a good joke, he is it's a genuinely game. impressed by himself. It's now a game.
1: Himself. It's now a game. I have to figure out a way to make sure that you don't see the joke coming.
0: <laughs> I feel like Derek prepares harder for his jokes than he does the actual episode of content. Like Derek could show up without any real preparation to talk about the scriptures that he's read. But for his these jokes, I know he's just plotting, he's drawing blueprints, making diagrams, like whatever else. He's I just see this super villain aura with this like single lamp in his dark room, plotting how he's gonna get me on this next episode. That's where the majority of <laughs> yeah. e- effort for yeah, these episodes comes I know. from. I uh, That's where it
1: goes. Yeah. So, anyway, I don't know if I said this, but you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Twitter and Instagram, we're at BTBLDS, and you just search us on Facebook. You can also find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, and that's about it. Oh, we need to yes. announce something really s- special that's happening. I'm we going do. to be. Uh, I don't know how I add. Adver- I haven't thought of the phrasing out of this, but I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool to connect with listeners and sort of, um, at least for me, put me in the hot seat and have people mm-hmm. ask questions live, and I just respond yes. to these live and see if you can uh, stump the chump.
0: <laughs> I'm calling it hashtag Ask Derek. Okay. That's what I'm going to call it for the ask time Derek. being. Yeah. So, if y'all got better ideas, let me know, but yeah.
1: So mark this on your calendar. It will be Sunday the 20th of June. So it will be the Sunday after you're hearing this. Let's do All right. 8 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Mountain. Uh, and we're going to somehow provide people a... Are we doing this on Zoom? I think we should do a Zoom link. A Zoom. Link. I was thinking... I was thinking
0: like IG Live
1: for ease, but we can totally do something. Oh, soon. well, we're going to do it somehow. We'll check out our Facebook and our Instagram to figure out how this is going to happen.
0: Yeah, we'll start posting about it next week. And we're also going to be hosting a I Am Greenflake, or His Name is Greenflake watch party. This is going to be on July 2nd. Um, we'll be advertising that as well. I'm not entirely sure what time that is going to be, but it is going to be July 2nd. Uh, again, hosting a watch party for that movie, groundbreaking movie, which is actually going to be debuting on Pioneer Day in an incredible act of prophetic pettiness by Mally Jr. Bonner. Um, So I am looking forward to that as well. Yes, that'll be great. That'll be great. With that, thank you all for tuning in till we meet again next week. Yes,
1: till we meet again next week. Happy Pride and see you next week.